there's a poem by the great Chinese poet Li Po um, that I've liked most of my life. Uh, he was he lived in 701 to 762, and this is a poem that I think embodies what it feels like to be here at Biasitos in such a pristine environment, uh, practicing such a beautiful way of life. So the combination of this way of life, this practice, and this environment. He said, um, it's called Questions and Answers. You ask me why I live on this green mountain. I smile no answer, my heart serene on flowing water, peach blossoms silently drift away, this is another world, another time, no likeness to the human world below. There's a Pali word, samvega, and it means spiritual urgency. And it's the opposite of a spiritual complacency. And this this urgency can take the form, I think, mostly of a of a longing that we often almost kill <laughs> to be in a modern life, you know, that's so busy and in some ways staying in touch with that longing um, <coughs> can be very, you know, it's like it's, it's essential but can be painful. And I think it's always helpful to look back in one's life and look at um, where that complacency uh, got a nudge (laughs) or a big nudge. Um, The great Zen master Dogen, um, his mom died when he was young. And when he was at the funeral, he was looking at the incense and the, as it was being lit and the smoke that was going up into the sky and he had a very deep glimpse of the effervescence of life but the, the, the intense fleetingness of life uh, and that he said that that experience of seeing the incense was something that um, inspired him to search very deeply. And I remembered when I read that, that when my mom died when I was young, it wasn't um, smoke from any incense, but it was um, an Irish wake. But I, I went into this room where the funeral, the wake was where my mom's body was in a coffin, but nobody, I don't know what how I ended up there, nobody else was there. And I remember putting my hand in the coffin and touching her body. And it was so cold. 
And it was such a surprise because I was so young. I just, it was like a electric shock therapy. So, you know, it's like, it just catapulted me out of any kind of complacency. And I, I, I felt like I was very different from my friends after that, that, or my sisters. My sisters didn't have the same response to this. Um, she did, they didn't, they didn't even look in the casket, actually. But it, it's just that we all um, have different times in our life when I think that we get um, shaken. And then when we get shaken, we see that we actually don't have a spiritual ground. And that the groundlessness is so unprotected. Most of you probably know the the Bob Dylan song that then Jimi Hendrix did so well, uh, where he said, There must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Um, usually that some vega leads us to some kind of um, intimation. Or it's like a intimation or a homing instinct that there is some way out. But in the in the practice, this practice, the way out is through. It's through understanding. It's through understanding. It's from the wisdom and the love um, are the antidote to the confusion, and are the relief. It's like there is a relief from suffering. So waking up from that the ignorance and the confusion. Um, you know, in the, in, for most of the human life, uh, going off to some remote place to, to do this search in whatever way, you know, is often much less comfortable than this. You know, it's, it's like one time I visited the beehives in Western... Ireland, those little rock under underground shelters, or you know, in the desert, you know, the all the ways, uh, the time of the Buddha, the ascetic practices, you know, it's it's comfort is not exactly what you would be met with as you began that kind of a search, um, and so the 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 aches and pains and the <clears throat> adjustment to and then maybe not the sheets we're used to or the mattress we're used to or the food we're used to or the schedule, the distractions we're used to are all uh, meant to um, help us leave our comfortable routine and bring about enough energy and interest in how things really are rather than how we want them to be.
one of my first retreats, I sat with a um, a teacher named Ruth Dennison, and I had taken it. Um, my sitting time at this meditation center, we got one retreat a year for a year of work. Uh, uh, and um, instead of the walking periods, we did something she called Ramprahum. Ramprahum. She was originally from, I think, Germany. so we would go down into this basement, and it would, I had this retreat in winter, and the first thing she had you do in Kamperhum was lie on this very, very cold floor, just like a cold cement floor for a really long time, like with no explanation. It was my second retreat I'd ever done. And so you'd be lying there, <laughs> just the freezing cold just going into your body. And then, then after a very long time, she would put, like she had a little record player, and she'd put a record on, and she'd tell you to dance. But then she would, like, yell at you for the way you weren't doing it right. And it was, so, you know, this was romper home. You know, it was like a joke, a bad joke. So, like, you'd start dancing, and she'd go, Michelle, <laughs> you're not doing this right. And I'd be like, oh, you know, you, you go from freezing cold to just trying to, like, dance or something. And um, she really would just nail into you and then you'd leave Rampertum and go back up to sit and every time I'd go back to sit I'd sit down and she'd say Michelle it's not what you want to get it's not about what you want to get it's about what is happening and I just sit there like okay okay <laughs> whatever you know but it was so um, painful because she she wanted you to learn how to be in the moment, but not lose yourself in the movement, to be awake and mindful through the movement, without again the old way was without any explanation, and slowly you know, at the middle the end of the retreat I was starting to understand a little, what she was talking about, and that that sense of. We're not trying to get rid of anything. We're not trying to get anything, but just be without losing ourselves in whatever's happening. That connection, the connection and non-attachment, you know, it's it's not that easy to learn what that actually, um, what the experience actually is. When the, uh, before the Buddha was the Buddha, he was the uh, Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva to be. And um, when he was born, there was a prophecy that he would either be a great king or a great, great spiritual teacher. And his father was a king, and he really didn't want his son to become a great spiritual teacher. So he did everything he could to protect his son from anything unpleasant, which is a very important key part of the story that I'll get to later, but um, maybe. Um, So the Buddha created three palaces, one for the rains, one for the winter, one for the summer, and just he never left these places. 
And at a certain point in his teens, he just, you know, great story, right? In his teens, he decided he was going to leave anyway. And his charioteer, his driver took him out. And um, it said that a celestial being, a deva, conjured up the first time he went out, an old person. And he'd never seen aging. And he was so shocked, he asked the driver, is, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to everyone? And the driver said yes. And he was so shaken, here it is again, that complacency to being shaken, that he, he couldn't go out anymore. He went home. And it said he said that the vanity of youth left him. And then he went out again after a while. He decided to try it again. And the same thing happened, except that the deva conjured up um, someone sick. And he'd never seen illness. And, you know, again, he asked, is this going to happen to me? Does this happen to everyone? And the driver said, yes. He went home. And it said the vanity of health left him. And then the third time, last time, well, no, third time, he went out four times. The third time he went out, he saw the deva conjured up someone dead, really shaken, you know, asked if this was going to happen to him. And everyone, yes, came home, and it said that the vanity of life left him. And then this is the story, the fourth time he went out another time, and he saw a renunciate. And the description of this, the translation is so beautiful. It said, he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. And it it just really uh, woke something up in him, you know, some longing that, of course, had been there for lifetimes. And um, it just set him on a trajectory that Uh, brought him to full enlightenment and the teachings that we get today. So someone more peaceful than peace itself, it's it's somehow we have either, um, like I said, some, some intimation of something that um, pulls us in a direction of finding the spiritual ground um, that's so important in life. During the late 60s, I could uh, talk about that part of my life for a long time, but there, um, there were, where I was in good old Springfield, Massachusetts, there were uh, a lot of ghetto riots, and um, I was involved with the beginnings of soup kitchens and daycare centers that the Black Panthers had started. Uh, And then one night it changed to um, going down to New Haven and making Molotov cocktails. It was like in one night the whole thing changed. And I remember that morning I was walking around with them in my pocket. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is not soup kitchens and daycare centers anymore. And I didn't quite, you know, I just, I knew 
It was like the most important moment in my life. I was just like totally sure that wasn't going to be my path. But they were all my friends. And all my friends ended up in jail for a really long time. It was like a huge loss. Um, but I just put them in a garbage can and I left uh, for a year. That that part of uh, Massachusetts where I grew up. Um, and then right around that same time period, uh, which I think had a huge influence on me, but I don't think I needed it, but when the, the kind of heat started to stir up on campus and there was all this um, trouble happening, I had a professor, a botany professor, who was a Quaker, and things got so tense and so difficult, a lot of professors quit, and um, there was <laughs> so much trouble. And I remember um, he put a sign on his door, you know, just right around this time period, and he said, out out to the woods for the day. Uh, and he, he was so disturbed because he was connected, really connected. Uh, but he, he was a Quaker, and he knew violence wasn't his path. And when he came back the next day, I remember looking in his eye and seeing someone more peaceful than peace itself. And it had a huge impact on me. Of course, I had inclinations that way totally anyway, which is why I was taking his classes anyway. But um, getting a taste of that is often what helps us get a sense that, (coughs) in whatever way, this is my path. And I, you know, one time Stephen and I were teaching in California at um, a huge center that um, was out in the desert. And I think there were like 140 people at this retreat, maybe 130, but a lot. And when you went into the meditation hall, there were, everyone would put their shoes, you know, well, like we do, but there were a lot of shoes. And when we were in the Dharma talk, we didn't really hear anything. And when we came out, somebody had stolen everybody's shoes. Uh, so that, you know, you, it's sort of similar. The teachers walked out, and we were all like... It was just, like, unbelievable. And then... A monk was sitting at retreat, and this monk came out, and we were still in shock. And he he looked at us, and his you know his sandals weren't there, and he went, hmm, and he just walked out like <laughs> imperturbable, no problem. So that just just getting that sense of peace and it might be that you get that sense just sitting on the porch or being by the pond or in the hall there's like these glimpses we have of peace Um, we call it equanimity Um, and I want to talk about that more in this tradition it's called holy equanimity 
And that's because it takes the deepest understanding. So when we say things are as they are, we can say things are as they are, or we can (laughs) say it to ourselves. Oh yeah, things are just as they are. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily have the equanimity, the deep understanding. And the deep understanding is it's unconditional acceptance. There's no conditions on it. And, and it, you know, we, we've said this a number of times, but by unconditional acceptance, it doesn't mean that you become passive or a doormat. It means that whatever is happening is actually happening. And it's, it's like the, the experience, the masquerade, the near enemy, the thing, the experience that seems so much like equanimity is denial or passivity or naivete, indifference. You know, it's that fake equanimity. It's the fake acceptance. Insensitivity. Numb. And the opposite of equanimity is reacting. So it's reacting to the um, unpleasant. When the unpleasant appears, as it will inevitably do, it's reacting with aversion or fear. And, you know, it's more complex than that, of course, that it, it can be disliking, frustration, annoyance, aversion or fear. Um, Anger, terror, rage, war. You know, that's the sequence. And then um, when pleasant experiences pass, there's a tendency, of course, that the same sequence will happen. Or as the pleasant is happening, the liking, um, the enjoyment the um, attachment, the wanting it to last, the holding on, the clinging, the craving, addiction. So when we talk about equanimity, there is a certain level where we start hitting the edges of understanding uh, karma or kama, that, that when we take birth, there's a stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that is unfolding um, that has some law, like there's a natural occurrence in it that's happening that uh, the Buddha said it would drive you crazy to understand, but that each moment of consciousness there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling that we have no control over. So with hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking... Uh, the six sense doors each moment of consciousness is a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral so the question is really where is the protection well the protection is not in you. things are as they are means that you can do your best with the metta the, the, the metta karuna mudita uh, you can do the best to take care of yourself and others but there's certain things you can't prevent. There's certain things we don't have the control over. So where 
where the liberation or the freedom comes in is is in um, the mindfulness, the choice, the choice to either show up for what's happening or go into numbness, denial. You know, you know, we're so good at it. This, this really isn't happening. We're great at it. To uh, the reaction to the pain, with the aversion, you know, the fear, the rage, etc., or the reaction to the pleasure, passing with holding on. Um, so that identification, that 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 contraction, is where when you believe it, when you buy into it. That's where we um, create more karma. So this is kind of the the depths of what the Buddha taught. So if you you get a sense of um, this is another Li Po poem. He said, "This is Zazen on Qingting Mountain." The birds have vanished from the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. And this is another leap of home called Old Dust. We live our lives as wanderers until dead we finally come home. One quick trip between heaven and earth, then the dust of a thousand generations. The moon rabbit mixes elixirs for nothing. The tree of long life is kindling. Dead, our white bones lie silent. When pine trees lean towards spring, remembering, I sigh, looking ahead, I sigh once more. This life is missed. What fame, what glory. Do you hear the difference? You know, the sense of like the kind of peace that's possible. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We can do this with anything, with fear, with loneliness, with sound, with sight. It's like that, that um, freedom. The question is, what is freedom? And where is choice? <coughs> In this existential predicament that we call our human life, so the unconditional acceptance means we actually let things be. And there's no need to let things go, because when you let things be, they go by themselves. Because there's no holding, there's no pushing away. And life is actually moving. So that there's a everything that appears is natural. But Anything that has power over our hearts is where we don't have freedom. So when you learn to work, say, with physical pain, that might help you 
start to work with mental pain or emotional pain. It's like once we get a sense of how to be mindful of a sound or a sight or a smell, anything that we have an entry point with, then that will be a teacher for us of how to be mindful of something else and mindful of something else. So if we if we feel like we're not fully enlightened yet, it just means that we have some things to keep practicing, right? No big deal. This is um, a question to Srinasargadatta Maharaj, the Indian saint. The question is, pain is not acceptable. And he said, why not? Did you ever try? Do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield. For the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So pain is only painful when resisted, joyful when accepted. And so we're not saying that pleasure and pain are a problem. It's we accept them both. We accept both pleasure and pain and neutral as they come and go by themselves. So when we talk about equanimity, we talk about the way of the world, loka dhamma, way of the world, loka dhamma, the eight worldly conditions. I named uh, the mother kitty that came to my door, loka dhamma, because I knew she had... um, the eight worldly conditions to deal with gain and loss praise and blame fame and disrepute joy and sorrow that this these are what what are a human life is made of and of course you can see the ones we prefer right we love gain we don't like loss Not many of us like blame. We tend to like praise. Fame and disrepute. Pretty clear, joy or sorrow. And then we get a sense of things are as they are. You know, what is the experience of that? Some years ago, well, it was quite a few years ago when... um, when I moved to Honolulu, Steve's uh, best friend was getting married. And um, it was a time when I thought, well, this beginner's class thing, I, I thought I uh, would take a hula class. And I had signed up for this class, and I had taken one. So that's a kind of little aside. Um, so we went to this wedding, and it was very big. Um, a lot of people were partying. 
Um, and we we had wanted to go home, but we were waiting until the bride threw the bouquet. Um, so we were all in this, this crowded place, and our car was actually <laughs> really close by, <laughs> which I wish I had gone into at that point. Um, and somewhere out of the blue, this really large woman, really large with spike heels, very, you know, really spike heels, who was very drunk, um, was trying to catch... It was all... You know how things happen when there's sort of an accident, you know, it all happens very quickly, and she was trying to catch the bouquet, and her spike heel went right on the top of my foot. Like, all her weight, like all the drunk weight went right on the top of my foot. And um, I knew I didn't want to scream (laughs) and ruin the wedding, you know, because the scream would have been outrageous. So I just, like, grabbed Steve and I said, get some ice, (laughs) let's go. And I, like, rolled up the windows and I was like, "Mm -hmm." it was so painful. So we were driving home. And I, I tend to be, uh, sometimes, not so much anymore, but uh, I've always nicknamed myself Calamity Jane. So I was in the back seat going, I have such bad karma. I have such bad karma. <laughs> like, and it was so, it was so painful. Um, and this taught me more than anything about this choice point. Because I kept going up into why is this happening? You know, and, you know, what's the karma? Why is this happening? And every time I could see that that was just, it was avoiding how painful it was. Like, and then I would say, oh, what is happening? Things are are as they are. Things are as they are. This is very unpleasant. You know, and it's just like, that's the unconditional acceptance. It happened. Things are as they are. Then I would go up into why... And I could see that was just avoiding the pain, you know. And it was a it was a habit, a very strong habit. And I watched that go on and on for a while. Um, one of my most powerful teachings. And it's not just pain, you know. It's like recently I went into this <clears throat> bakery that I like in Massachusetts when I was visiting home. Um, and last year when I visited, there was this little girl that um, was so cute, and uh, she just happened to be there, and I asked her her name, and she said, <laughs> her name was is Emily Dickinson. And so this year, <laughs> um, and this bakery is right across from Emily Dickinson's house. Uh, so this year I went in, and... Um, I said, what's your name? And she said, Emily Dickinson. And there were there was some huge art project on the lawn at this place, and there were all, all these parts of poems written in huge black letters on white, on, on these cardboard little houses. So I said, oh, Emily. And I said, what's this out there? I've never seen anything like this. And she said, oh, those are my poems. <laughs> <laughs> so then... <clears throat> Um, she was making this beautiful art piece. She was gluing all these glittery butterflies and flowers and making beautiful designs. And I said, oh, that's so beautiful. And she handed it to me. 
just know it was so beautiful. She put so much time into it, and it didn't go through the thought process. Just here. And um, I really miss her. It's just, I don't know her, but it's like she's such a, a great, bright being, you know, and so much fun. And who knows if she'll be there <laughs> next year. But there's that sense of, it's not just pain. It's like we have to go through that range of how life is and these unusual, mystery, mysterious life that we have. And last year when we were teaching on the land on the Big Island, um, it's in the north, um, fairly remote. And partway through the retreat, uh, two Burmese people drove up. <laughs> Just, we didn't know them. Um, and they <clears throat> started asking me to take them around, and I took them around. And then they went into this little kitchen that we have, and they started asking the cook all these questions. Uh, and she'd never practiced before. And they were asking her if she was on the precepts, and <laughs> she meditated. And then they started asking her um, the price of the food. And she, you know, she, we were just she was just answering all these questions. And then, and then, how much would uh, the price of lunch be for each person, and then everybody? So she gave them a total, and they just pulled this amount of money out of their pocket and offered it, and then they left. Because, you know, that's the tradition in Burma. You, you, want, you want so much to support yogis' practice. It's like there are places in Burma, like there are monasteries where you can practice, where people, Burmese people wait a year to have the opportunity to offer for lunch or breakfast. They wait a year. And then everybody, if they get to be there, and you know, when you're in Burma at your at the retreat, and um, you're sitting there, Burmese people watch you eating because it makes them so happy that you're practicing. And then you know, if there's someone that gets to gets the opportunity to offer the food, everybody else comes around and congratulates them. They can, you know, it's like they congratulate them for having such fortune, good fortune, for being able to offer for food for yogis. That's how noble and important this practice is considered. So there's, you know, this range of experience from, you know, just it seems like it's very unacceptable pain to... It, it doesn't mean you condone it to accept it. It means it's happening. And is there a freedom in that? Is there a choice point of how to work with it? And the intensity of pleasure. And is there a choice point of how to work with it without getting lost? So again, you know, that range of war and addiction, it's like... We really needn't be surprised at how that unfolds in this human world. It's not surprising if you get to understand consciousness and pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and that stream of it that is a given for us as humans. And that if we have no training and we have no protection, then of course 
it leads to all this suffering. Of course. So hence, soft readiness, reminding us all, readiness means that we're ready for anything to happen. So the mindfulness is a protection for anything to happen. Because anything can happen. One time I was sitting, um, my first long retreat, uh, it was my third retreat, it was a month in Wales, uh, and it was at a Polish Boy Scout house, um, and it had a very, very long driveway. And toward the end of the retreat, um, I had eczema come out all over my body. I was born with it all over me, and then it just... It was amazing. Just during one sitting, it all came out all over my body. Uh, And the teacher had to take me to the doctor. There was no manager at this retreat. And I felt so ashamed and humiliated that the teacher had to take me to the doctor. And it might have been the day before the retreat ended. um, And there were two yogis at the end of this long driveway talking and fooling around, hanging out. And he he went pale. And he, he drove past them a bit, and then he stopped the car. And he looked at me and he said, they have no idea what they're doing. And a little tear came down his cheek. You know, the importance of the practice and how you just don't want to waste a second of it and how precious it is to get this opportunity to practice. Again, when you think of most people's lives, you know, and how when I think of my parents or my sisters or my relatives, they have no resources to do this. They don't have that samvega. And if they did, would they have the ability to pull this off, you know. It's considered really um, noble. So this teacher said to me when we came out of the doctor's office uh, in Wales, even enlightened beings have to live out their karma. You know, so the Buddha had a bad back. Yeah. He was human. And it's said that we have different kinds of karma. Some karma, you know, will disappear, and some of it lasts through our lifetime. So it's, I forget the name of the kind of karma, karma that the Buddha had, the bad back, that it lasted through his lifetime. But it's... The protection, you know, we think if we if we practice enough, you know, there's not going to be any pain. But that's not the idea. The freedom is freedom as it is, not not as Ms. Ruth Dennison Romper who you know, it's like <laughs> is it what you're wanting to get or what is happening? Very different question.
there's an amazing um, book called Woman, Woman in the Polar Night by Christiane Ritter. And she, um, in 1933, she went up to this, almost to the North Pole, um, because her husband worked up um, in an island. I forget the name. It was... Uh, I mean, it sounds so bizarre to say it's owned by Norway, but it, you know, it was... Svalbard. Pardon? Svalbard. Yeah, <laughs> Svalbard. And uh, he worked up there, and he'd write home, and she would always be expecting him to say how awful it was, and he couldn't wait to come home. And as the years went on, his, his writing became more spiritual and more awesome. And they had a child that he kept telling her to come up there, so she decided to go, go up. I think her child was four, for a year. And her parents and her relatives and friends, they all thought she would die within a week. I mean, this is way before uh, down equipment, by the way. This is like, you know, really harsh conditions and really cold. And, oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's amazing to just uh, read her stories of what it was like, um, this little teeny tiny place where they were always uh, hanging dead meat, you know, bloody meat, and then they didn't have any meat, or nothing to eat, and uh, they would leave her there, and her the, her husband and a friend would leave her there for weeks, and these storms, and you know, bears around, and it's just awesome to just read how she transformed, and she just kept rising to the occasion and um, her writing is luminescent just her descriptions of things spiritually luminescent and finally after this year when she got finally on some ship to go home a doctor uh, was there because everyone thought she would just be either close to dead or dead and he examined her and he said um, about her incomparable peace and when she got home a few maybe a few months later her house burned down her family house burned down didn't even phase her didn't bother her just found peace finding peace finding peace So there's often a feeling, and it, it is, it's like there's a war, and the early, the early texts um, will sound very um, warlike. There's a battle between the, the forces of the hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment, doubt, those forces, and the forces of um, the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, equanimity. But there's all the forces of generosity, patience, right? You know, the, there's so many forgiveness. There's so many positive spiritual qualities. And it'll feel sometimes that when we don't have this equanimity, it'll feel like a war. And when there's equanimity, the war is over. So the, the, the mind of a fully enlightened being is said to have six-limbed equanimity. 
So what that means is that at each sense store, moment by moment, there's peace. There's a sound. It's unpleasant or pleasant or neutral. Fine. There's a smell. Unpleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Fine. There's a taste. Unpleasant, pleasant or neutral. Do you see? It, it's not like this human is any different from us at all, whatsoever. Thoughts, body sensations, whatever is happening. And they're pleasant or, or unpleasant or neutral. But instead of being at war with it, meaning that we're trying to manipulate it or control it, there's peace. And this doesn't mean that we're passive. This doesn't mean that we're doormats. This doesn't mean that that the compassion is described as the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering in the world. And there's, a, there's of course, a movement toward relieving that suffering, whether it's inward or outward. So you're at this retreat. There's a reason. It's like it's the indifference to suffering that causes more suffering, outwardly or inwardly. And the, the, the willingness to come to retreat shows that there's, you know, a lack of indifference to your own suffering. And then when you leave a retreat, there's more capacity to respond to suffering in the world, to alleviate it. But hopefully, as usual, we get, if there's often we get angry about pain, we receive that information. And, you know, when I was... <laughs> in those days of uh, the soup kitchens to daycare centers to suddenly uh, the, that violence, um, I was really angry at that time period. Really angry. Just about all the injustice, you know. And it's like that is something that I hope I never lose sensitivity to, the injustice. Or the, the the wanting to relieve suffering, but it's like my ability to do that at that point in time was pretty limited because I didn't understand what I understand now, and it hit a peak when I I, I had many different kinds of jobs. I worked um, in environmental education for a while, and I had this group of kids out um, in the woods. And it had been a year, a long year, of, like, really hard work. So I understand why I got impatient. But this kid just took this birch bark and just ripped it off this tree, like, oh, you know, just showing off to his friends. And I hit this point where I wanted to kill this kid. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I might have yelled at him a bit, but it was like, but it was more internally. I was so horrified by what I felt. And I knew, you know, there had been these times in my life, that was another point in time where I was like, I have to do something about this anger. And that's when I started going to retreats.
there's um, a lot that can be said about the vastness of the spiritual world. Uh, but I just wanted to say in terms of forgiveness, it's like, you know, we all get exposed to the eight worldly conditions, the gain, loss, joy, sorrow, fame, disrepute, um, praise and blame. Um, and in terms of forgiveness, I just wanted to offer, I think, the most important teaching I ever heard on forgiveness was from a, a Navajo man that had lived through torture in World War II. And he was speaking on NPR some years ago. And he said that forgiving this man was actually more painful (laughs) than going through the experience. Like it was actually harder that the, the process it took him most of his life from the war, a long time of, of, of starting to see that it was going to take for him to forgive this man. Um, it, was, it was harder than the initial experience. And that was so helpful for me in terms of some of my more painful experiences, particularly when I was young. It was like, oh yeah, it makes so much sense. That's why it's so hard. It takes so much strength. So there will be there will be times, and I think it's so important, like what Steve was saying, to remember that it's impersonal. It's forgiveness that forgives, and it's not forgiveness that doesn't forgive. It's not personal, but we'll see that there. Are, you start to see how forgiveness will work for us for some things, but there will be some other things uh, unless you've led a more protected life. But you'll still have the wars in the world and all the injustice to deal with. So it's not like you can get away with this, you know, away from not having to face this, but it's the deeper, deeper things that um, really test us. And I think that it's very important to have a pace with this uh, that's patient, and just trusting, you know, trusting, 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 trusting. That, that, that you don't have to worry about that pace. There's a huge cedar tree in um, this island in British Columbia where we teach that it's off in the woods. And from one side of the tree, it looks totally... Um, unblemished, like it's never been hurt. Uh, And you have to walk really far away to even get to see how big it is and beautiful. But if you go around the tree and look inside, you can walk inside it and the whole thing has been burnt out. Like it's, it, it just went through this amazing fire. And you have to look up and see that there's a certain place where it starts to be okay again. That there's, you know, the inside of the tree is there, but it's way high up. And then you go around and you look back and you see, how is this possible? This tree has just, it's just completely hollowed out from this burn. It's burnt out. And it's very inspiring for me. Because I, you know, I tend to overwork and get burnt out and I, I'll look at it or, you know, I'll think of the places where I, I still can't forgive or have forgiven and it's still work to do. And I'll get so inspired by this tree. 
the resilience of it, the power of um, life in its goodness. So I'd like to end with a Ryokan. The clouds have drifted away and the weather is clear again. Abandon this world. Abandon yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide your way. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.